0: American business is all about big data, so much so that the master's degree in business analytics now competes with those in business administration. But remember the book and the movie called Moneyball? Algorithms showed the way to victory for the Oakland Athletics in Major League Baseball. But the team discovered human behavior got in the way of those sophisticated analytics. So how does that happen? Professor Felipe Caro has some answers to that. He leads the Masters in Science in Business Analytics program at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. I'm Warren Alney and this is How the World Works, a podcast series from UCLA Anderson. Professor Felipe Caro, welcome to you.
1: Uh, Hello Warren, thanks for having me.
0: I'm delighted to have you. You've conducted some award-winning studies that are now taught in business schools and you started out with Zara, the Spanish fast fashion retailer And you had your focus on decision support systems or DDS and how to implement them. What are they? What are they supposed to do? And what are the problems with implementation?
1: Decision support system is basically a tool that packages an algorithm. So, going back to your analogy of Moneyball, the data and the analysis that they did to scout players and decide on which players to acquire. All that can be packaged if there's an algorithm that can be repeated with the same input and generate on a regular basis similar output. That's what algorithms do. And the decision support system is the combination of that algorithm that's coded and an interface so the user can interact with the algorithm. So that's essentially what we did with Zara. We developed algorithms to support their decisions. In their case, decisions like inventory allocation and markdown pricing. And we tested those algorithms. We figured out in a scientific way that they were making better decisions than the manual processes that they had before. So they deployed a decision support system and rolled them out so the country managers could use them
0: country managers all over the world, I take it, and operating under very different circumstances.
1: Oh yeah, so uh, Zara has stores in more than 80 countries. And in particular, one of the tools that we developed was to support decisions for markdown pricing. And that's where the story about the human interaction with the algorithm comes from, because we discovered that even though we had proved that the algorithm was making good decisions, after the tool was deployed, the country managers were not following the recommendations of the tool as often as we would have expected. This is where, you know, the difference between a decision support system and full automation comes in. Because in full automation, the output of the algorithm goes straight to implementation. In the case of a DSS, there's still valuable input from the human, because models make mistakes and data is imperfect right data can be noisy so you want a human to have some oversight on the output of the model before implementing the decisions however we were seeing that they were deviating or not adhering to the recommendations as much as we would have expected
0: But before we get into the reasons for that, elaborate a little bit, if you will, on what you mean by better decisions, particularly having to do with inventory and markdown pricing. This was coming at the end of a season sale.
1: That's a good question. When we talk about analytics, there's different types of analytics. There's descriptive analytics, which is mostly dashboards. Then you have predictive analytics, which is everything related to some sort of forecast. And then you have prescriptive analytics. And in prescriptive analytics, there's a decision that you want to optimize. And by optimizing, we mean there is some objective, some goal that you want to achieve that is impacted by those decisions that you make. So, in the case of inventory allocation, usually it has to do with inventory holding costs and the lost sales or the missed sales because of stockouts. So, that would be your objective. You want to make inventory decisions to minimize those costs. And in the case of markdowns, you want to maximize revenue. This is what we call like a classic revenue management problem because the inventory decisions have already been made. The inventory is already at the store, so all the costs are sunk at that point. So all you can do to maximize profit is to increase your revenue. Companies like retailers in particular do that by playing with the price. The decisions in this case are the markdowns on a weekly basis. The objective is to maximize the total revenue across the entire period of clearance sales. So when I say optimal, I mean these are the prices or the markdowns that maximize that revenue
0: and with outlets all over the world, owned by the company and franchised as well, I take it there's a lot of money involved, but the margins are very small.
1: Yeah, margins in retail are extremely small. That is common across the board. And they're even smaller for groceries. This is apparel. And that's why these models can make a difference because even a one or 2% improvement in revenue is huge in terms of margin. And in particular, the situation that I'm describing, since all the costs are sunk, any additional revenue goes straight to the bottom line. So it's essentially profit immediately. Therefore, the CFO in particular was very interested in this project when we developed the algorithm because he was very aware that every additional euro that they made by making better markdown decisions would go straight to the bottom line.
0: And obviously, this applies in a lot of different places. You mentioned groceries, and uh, that's another area where the margins are small, uh, but the algorithms could be very important. So what did you find that you said you were surprised that in many cases, the managers around the world didn't necessarily go along with the recommendations that were coming out of the
1: algorithms? Why not? We were surprised because we ran this controlled field experiment, which is like a scientific way of testing the performance of an algorithm in practice and seeing whether it makes an improvement or not. And we found that it was improving revenues, increasing revenues by 6%. As we just mentioned, this is a huge improvement in terms of revenue and even better in terms of margin. And because the design of the experiment is scientifically made, we are very confident on that number, that this is really increasing the revenue by making better decisions. And for an academic, that's that's all you need. Like, end of story. But when they rolled it out, when they implemented the decision support system, that kind of information that, as I said, would have been enough for someone like me, like an academic, didn't seem to convince the country managers and they would overrule the recommendations of the decision support system. It's good that they overrule because when the model can make mistakes, but they were overruling it in 30 or even 40% of the instances, which was way too much. And that's when we started to look into the data because they fortunately kept data of all the recommendations of the model of the tool and what the final price was that was implemented. So we could compare and see when exactly they had followed or had adhered to the recommendations of the model and when they had deviated. And that's the study that we did. There's possibly many reasons why this could happen, but we found very strong evidence for at least two things that were happening. And they were all based under like an overarching problem that was happening, which was that they were too used to the old way of making decisions. So this in more academic terms is what we call a status quo bias. When people are very much ingrained with some way of of making decisions, and there's resistance to changing and adopting new methods. So that's like the overarching phenomenon that was happening, and they were deviating and instead following the legacy heuristic, the manual way of thinking that they had before the implementation of the DSS.
0: In some cases, as I understand it, there was in fact inventory left over. They didn't use everything. They didn't sell it all. It was sort of hard for the managers to understand how that could possibly be the case and that it would still lead to you having more revenues if you still had stuff around.
1: Exactly. So I said the overarching phenomenon is status quo bias, but then we found evidence for two sub-effects that were driving the deviations from the recommendations of the DSS And one of them had to do with the leftover inventory. Put yourself in the situation of a a country manager during clearance sales. You have a bunch of stock that didn't sell during the regular season, and you're applying markdowns to liquidate that stock. And stock is using space. It's very visible. You see it in the store and, and kind of becomes something that you want to get rid of so it's very common when it comes to to clearance sales the managers put more attention into getting rid of the inventory rather than maximizing revenue and those are two different objectives right because you could get rid of inventory very quickly if you put extremely aggressive markdowns it's going to fly off the shelves but you're going to make very little revenue so that was one of the things that we discovered that they were thinking more in terms of liquidating stock, getting rid of it as soon as possible, instead of thinking about maximizing revenue. And what you mentioned about the leftover inventory is something that, that could happen you know, in a few situations. It could happen that the best way of maximizing revenue is to keep a higher price and maybe a few units will remain unsold. And there's always ways of salvaging them. And Zara has always had proper ways to salvage the remaining inventory. But that's counterintuitive for the country manager. Seeing a little bit of leftover inventory at the end of clearance sales is not something that came natural to them. Now, many years later, things are different. But at the time when we were doing this implementation, for them it was absolutely something strange and counterintuitive.
0: And there's also something that's not counterintuitive, and that is a lot of the managers had too much to do.
1: Right. So the other issue that we found had to do with what you were mentioning, which is like being overwhelmed with too many decisions to make. So we found that another reason why they would deviate was when the problem became more complex like let's suppose that you're you know making decisions for one particular group of products and within each group the country managers has to make pricing decisions each week and let's say that you have to make 20 of them there's a lot of combinations of different prices that you can consider and if you're doing this manually which is the way they were used to that can become overwhelming there's a lot of scenarios that you have to consider. So we found that when the number of pricing decisions that they had to make within a group increased, they would revert more often to their legacy way of thinking. The status quo thing kicks in and they revert back to the legacy process or the legacy heuristic.
0: So you've worked on this for a long time. Uh, what have you come up with in terms of how you get rid of these problems that arise from the fact that you're not just dealing with analytics you're dealing
1: with human nature well this is a fascinating part of the field because there's a lot of research that's going on as people try to use analytics in practice there's many things that seem obvious which is like you know when you're developing the interface you have to involve The people that are going to use it. But then things that are more subtle are like the ones that I just mentioned. These are behavioral biases that are known in the academic literature, but when you're designing an interface, you might not think of them that they could interfere with the adoption of the tool. So that's when I think the kind of collaboration that we had with Zara between academics and practitioners is very useful. And what we did was additional tests of modifications in the interface to deal with the issue of the inventory was so salient that they would focus on the inventory and not on revenue because revenue is more abstract it's just like a number in their minds whereas inventory is physical and they can see it at the stores, or at least the store managers will tell them about how it's becoming something that bothers them to have so much inventory in the store that's not flying off shelves. That's what we call saliency. And to mitigate the impact of the saliency of inventory, what you have to do is you have to make revenue more salient. And the way we did that was we made changes in the interface so they could see everything was focused on revenue. And they could see metrics showing them based on, you know, what prices they were considering, how they would be doing in terms of revenue. Now, we thought that was a good idea and we implemented it. But on its own, it was not enough. So it didn't make too much of a change. And that's because if you just give them a number, it's hard to know, well, is this good or bad? You need some anchor. You need some reference point. some benchmark therefore we made another change into the interface and what we did is that we added a small window at the very bottom that would tell them how they were doing at the same point in time a year ago in terms of revenue for that particular group of products so they could immediately compare wherever they were at that point in clearance sales oh you know this is a good decision because at least I have a benchmark, I have a reference point, I will be on par with last year or I will be even better than last year at this given point in time. So those two changes were changes that we made and after the second one in particular the adoption increased dramatically
0: so you were able to save some money what about the question of having too much work to do did they have time to look at the little box and see the changes on the interface you said that it apparently worked but i wonder how it overcame that question of what you refer to as rational
1: inattention it had to do more with training and communication becoming more confident in what the model was doing Remember, the reason why this was done in the first place is, of course, to make better decisions, but we're still keeping the human because sometimes what happens with algorithms is that people don't like them because they fear that they're going to lose their job. That's one of the issues with automation is that people don't like it because they start thinking, oh, this is going to replace me, so I'm going to sabotage the algorithm. But that was not Zara's approach. They say nobody's going to lose their job here. Actually, this tool should make your life easier. The tool is intended to be there or, you know, available. So country managers don't have to worry that much for 95% of the cases. They only have to worry about those 5% or less instances where things look strange. They might have to do some additional analysis because the model forgot or wasn't aware that in a certain country there was a holiday coming up or something like that. But in 95% of the cases, the model is usually right. The country manager can just say, okay, implement. I'll have extra time to worry about more important things. That message is something that takes time to sink in. So it really took you know, a few seasons actually for the country managers to realize, oh, this is really making my life easier. This is really helping me. And the model is making good choices. So I don't have to be constantly questioning, I just have to worry about the strange cases. So you're not really changing the
0: algorithm in order to improve the situation, you're involving training, you're getting the managers that have to make the ultimate decisions more involved in the process.
1: In our case, we didn't have to change the algorithm, you're absolutely right. It really has to do with the interaction between human and algorithm. You address that with remedies like, for instance, changing the interface, training, more communication or collaborating with the users. And that's why I think it's a fascinating area of research because we many times just develop the algorithm and forget about how are people really going to use this? Are they going to believe in it? Are they going to trust the outcome? Are they going to feel that they're competing with the algorithm and all those things can be very negative and maybe the algorithm won't be used at all and the company will miss out on the benefits that the algorithm can bring are there
0: companies that aren't as concerned about the human element as Zara is and which uh, simply want to go ahead and put the algorithms into effect regardless and where in fact there might ultimately be full automation and a lot of people would lose their jobs
1: I wouldn't say that there are companies that don't care about the human element. I think the most companies these days do care, but they have different strategies in terms of how much to get humans involved in these algorithms. That's really a strategic choice and there's different reasons for one strategy or the other and might depend on different aspects of the business. But some companies, for instance, one example is Amazon, might prefer to automate more of these decisions and remove humans from the process are they're doing it. In general, that's something that has to do, as I said, with the type of business and the context. But in general, they still care about the human aspect because at the end, they're going to be selling to humans and they have employees so both of them are going to be very important for the way they roll out these algorithms
0: generalize a little bit if you will and describe how applicable to other kinds of businesses this analysis is because i gather that it's made a great deal of an impression
1: so the idea of using concepts from behavioral economics to improve the adoption of a prescriptive tool, that's something that's getting significant attention in the academic world these days. Uh, it's, I would say, a rather new field. I am, in fact, the editor of a special issue on this topic in a journal that's called Management Science, and we're getting very interesting papers that I would say are first in addressing some of these issues. Now, where else can you see this? I would say anywhere where you have some sort of prescriptive analytics that you want to embed in decision processes. And it can also happen with purely predictive analytics. For instance, there's a nice paper that had to do with something that's called algorithm aversion, and that might happen when people or decision makers realize that forecasts based on algorithms or tools like um, machine learning or econometrics are imperfect. They occasionally, as I said, make mistakes and, and you will see errors in the forecast. And even if you show that overall they perform well, the fact that they sometimes are wrong, makes people suspicious. That's what you could call algorithm aversion. It's happening in many places where they want to use machine learning or any type of advanced analytics. So it's not just retail, retail is is one of them, but even in healthcare, you see some situations that are very similar.
0: So what you're saying then is that big data and analytics have a great deal to offer, but that they have to be implemented by human beings and, consequently, human
1: behavior becomes very important. Absolutely. And this, to be honest, was very eye-opening to me. I think this is something that many companies are going to run into in the upcoming years because there's been this big push to adopt analytics. And everywhere you hear of companies trying to use more of it, the Faculty Director of the Master of Science in Business Analytics at UCLA Anderson, And we see the demand for the type of students that come out of our program. So everyone is running into analytics and wants to be able to say we are using analytics in our decision making. But it's easy to forget that's not enough. Having capable people that can write algorithms and do sophisticated analysis is not enough for those decisions to be implemented, especially if there's a human involved. That's where this human algorithm connection happens. I think there's going to be many more companies running into this type of a situation. And that's why I think the research that is happening is going to be very useful to learn how to avoid it, how to mitigate it. And it's also a wake-up call. Analytics on its own is not enough. I think that's a a very important message.
0: It's not enough. And yet... You're a great believer in analytics.
1: Oh, yeah. No, no, I'm an absolute believer. I think that analytics is here to stay and that we will make better decisions with analytics. The key is how you find that sweet spot so the humans really benefit and don't get in the way that could eventually prevent the analytics from being useful as it should be. That's where the challenge is right now. There's still more things to do here. Algorithms are imperfect, as I said already, and they can themselves propagate some biases. So that's another issue that people are, are researching. There's evidence that has shown that in some situations the algorithms can help remove some sort of like discriminatory way of providing a service. So there's not a like, absolute answer of, oh yes, this will always happen, algorithms are always good, always bad, humans are always going to mess up or not. That's why we still have to do more research to understand better how to navigate this interaction between humans and algorithms. On the one hand, you have
0: the people that are putting the analytics into effect and forming the algorithms. On the other hand, you have the user and somebody's got to get in between, it sounds like to me.
1: Absolutely, there is, I would say, some gap there. That's one of the reasons that motivated us to start our Master of Science in Business Analytics, because we noticed that they could recruit very talented people that can do amazing coding and same with people that can do advanced you know analytics from either math or engineering schools. But then you have this gap with, okay, how can all that be really used and understood within the context of organizations? So one of the motivations for developing our Master of Science in Business Analytics was to fix that gap. We have, on the one hand, people that are more into the management and strategy of the company. That's the typical MBA. And then you have the data scientist and we need somebody in between. Our students are trying to fill that gap. They have the understanding of how these algorithms work, but we emphasize as much the communication part that they have to be able to explain why this is relevant to the company. Because you can do many cool analysis using whatever is the latest technique out there, but if it's not really for a purpose, it's not really addressing some of the main challenges of the company, it's useless so you really have to be able to say okay this analysis is important because the company is facing these type of challenges and the analysis addresses those challenges and then you have to be able to explain how these methods reach their output how do they get to the recommendations because they can't be just black boxes you know managers don't like black boxes we like to understand why is it that the algorithm is making this recommendation instead of that. So all that has to do with communication and a lot of storytelling. So those are skills that we make sure our students acquire throughout the program. And on top of that, we have to add now everything else that we were talking about, the understanding of behavioral biases. For instance, now we are having some sessions in which our students learn about these, these biases because they're pervasive in the business world. So I think that's gonna be useful for life, regardless of whether it's just analytic.
0: All right, some fascinating, and I think very important insights into the real world of American business and the use of big data and how it can be done. Felipe Caro, Professor of Decisions, Operations, and Technology Management at UCLA. Anderson, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, and thanks a lot for having me.
0: I'm Mormon Alney, and this has been How the World Works. Thanks a lot for listening.